Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today. I thought I'd just ask you to maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role on the exhibition. So over to you. Well, thank you, Dawn. It's my great pleasure to chat to you today about working on the Aranzamin exhibition, which means Land of the Persians. It was such a huge learning curve for me, and it's been incredibly rewarding. And so just wanting to really share some of those insights with you, the wonderful volunteers who help bring our stories to life in the exhibition. I guess I sort of was brought onto the project quite early on, which was a great opportunity to work closely with Dr. Pedran Hosranajad, who was employed by the museum to survey and understand our Persian collection. And really through his his research, he was able to sort of establish that we have a very diverse collection of more than 1,000 objects, a lot of which were not catalogued as originating from Persia. And so it was really through that process of having a look broadly across all those objects and bringing them down to an area that we have over here in the Harwood building called a workroom and to start looking at them really closely and that way begin to think about how they might be grouped together and and selected for display in the exhibition. I think quite early on the development of the themes, which, as you know, there are seven starting with joy and happiness and then purification and cleansing, spirituality and devotion, poetry and calligraphy, rituals and performance, patronage and craftsmanship and nature and design. They were inspired in some way by the ancient and metaphoric symbolism of the number seven for Persians. And coincidentally, wonderfully, the actual seven arches that are existing in the gallery space adjacent to the loco number one are seven arches in that original structure of the powerhouse building. So that worked so perfectly to be able to then select seven themes that would explore particularly the functionality and use of the objects and tell some of those stories. I wouldn't mind just lingering on the themes for a moment. So it's always interesting to get the background information, but also to make it clear for volunteers why that information might be in their notes. So they're not expected to remember everything that's written about each of those themes. As far as I can understand it, themes help develop an exhibition and help select the objects. Is that right? Can you talk a little bit about what themes are for and how they work in an exhibition? The curatorial team is always kind of drawn to grouping objects into themes in order to help tell a particular narrative. And in this case, sometimes traditionally in museum environments, you might see groups arranged by materiality or technique. When you're looking at applied art collections, such as ceramics, metalwork, graphic design, textiles, that's often, you know, something that we've even used ourselves in Reflections of Asia that we did a couple of years ago, for example. Um, and that's a really beautiful way of look, at looking at the collection. But this exhibition, we wanted to do a little bit differently in terms of actually being able to see a whole different sort of materials and techniques displayed together in a section. So in each of the, the seven themes, you will see a mixture of metalwork, ceramics, textiles and 2D works coming together to tell stories about the craftsmanship 
and the artists and and makers who've actually made that material for particular functionality and purposes. So in joy and happiness, an emphasis on stories of love and wine and poetry, which are really important metaphors for Persian craftsmen. That is a really good insight for volunteers just to help people get a grasp of how these might have been grouped in this particular exhibition and why. Do you were going to go on and talk about particular objects that were selected by Pedro? Yes, so you will actually find that there are seven objects. I think there's maybe one for almost every section in the exhibition, but perhaps not the last one. For example, in the joy and happiness section I was talking about earlier, the object we featured with extra text there is a tribal rug. Mm. And in particular, this object is actually quite rare. And so that's why we've highlighted that object. It's from the nomadic Bakhtiari tribes in southwest Iran. It's called a Kaliche, and it was actually made by a young bride prior to her wedding. Oh, wow. As a sign of being a good wife. And, of course, the rug is constructed of sheep's wool, which is a you know in abundant source in that region and it features beautiful foliage and decorative motifs, including my favorite, which are some musicians that look to be playing some sort of flute or um, pipe instrument. And that's really why then once again it fits so well in the joy and happiness section. And and so it's really you do have to, you can look very deeply into the objects their detail and craftsmanship to help see how they relate to those seven themes. There are other objects in that section that feature beautiful imagery of people dancing and so that's another reason why it's in that first happiness and joy section. We then move to purification and cleansing. What's important to take away from This section really is that a lot of the material is for very everyday daily use. There are water containers, there are bowls, liquid liquid bowls that feature, you know, beautiful turquoise glaze, but they are very functional. And, And a particular story I like from this section is that through this research process that Pedran's been undertaking, um, due to his knowledge of Persian material culture, he was able to update our documentation for several of the objects which have been acquired as early as the 1880s. Mm. And for that reason, the documentation differs greatly in terms of how much we know about those objects. So there's one particular object, a basin that's metal, and it was actually catalogued originally as a brazier, not from Persia. And of course, it does look like it could be something that might have had coal in it. But of course, Pedro was able to let us know that in fact, no, this is used for pouring water in to to clean oneself um, before going into prayer. So in terms of being able to completely change the narrative of that object and others was really exciting. In terms of the exhibition process, we're so lucky that when we are able to resource working on on an exhibition, it means that we can allocate dedicated time to looking at objects in great detail, spending time searching the archives, which I'll share a bit about as well, to learn more about these objects and often uncover, you know, many pieces of information that were not once known. Mm-hmm. 
I might actually tell you some stories about the provenance just to give you all some stories that are not featured in that large print guide summary. One thing that's been really interesting for us to discover through this process was how we actually came to have these objects in our collection. And what we discovered is that this suite of objects really is a story of immigration and that the reason why we have some of some very spiritual and religious objects here in our collection that would not have been known to the uh, European tourist, um, particularly from the spirituality and devotion section, is, is a result of donations to the museum throughout the 1950s and 70s from donors of Persian origin who have immigrated to Australia and they've then, of course, actually grown up in Iran, known as Persia at that time, and, and brought those objects with them. So, for example, there's a woman that you'll see in the credit lines called Mrs A. Edgar, and there's a significant number of objects that have been donated by her. And she actually, when we had a look through the records and working with Paul Wilson, our fantastic archivist, we discovered that of course her name is actually Anik so whilst Edgar doesn't sound very Iranian her name was Anik and she was the daughter of a Persian trader antiques dealer in Tehran she immigrated to Australia in 1950 and then donated a whole lot of her collection to us in 1970. Right. Likewise there's also a gentleman called Mr JJ Fairness that you'll see throughout the show and he too uh, immigrated to Sydney in 1950, changed his name on arrival to Australia and once again he had grown up in Isfahan and so brought a whole lot of beautiful objects with him when he came to Australia and donated them also sort of throughout the 1940s and 50s as well. That's just a really fascinating understanding of how we've ended up with some of these really significant material culture from Persia. So what you're saying is there's a kind of heart and an intimacy to this exhibition because these objects were actually used by the people who bequeathed them and donated them and they were of spiritual significance to them rather than being exotic collection pieces that they've acquired as something of interest. Exactly. Yeah. So that's really unique. And I probably have time to mention the towards the, the latter part of the exhibition in the nature and design section. Mm-hmm. That was a really another unique story. We discovered that Florence Broadhurst, who we have collection material related to her design archive as a printer in the 1960s. Well, well, Pedram was in the basement and having a look through all these wallpaper sample books and all of a sudden came across these Persian birds and and a phoenix, which is called Simorg in Farsi. And so you'll see those objects on display in long flatbed showcases, beautiful Persian pomegranate wallpaper. But of course, the, the burning question was, how did Florence know so much about Persian culture? And how was she influenced to make make these designs? And it was through further investigation that we also discovered the Kadri family who emigrated to Sydney in 1951 and established one of the first Persian carpet 
businesses in Sydney. There was actually a direct connection between Florence Broadhurst and Jacques Cadre, who was the father of the business at that time. And actually, Florence Broadhurst used to visit the Cadre family in, in Edgecliff every fortnight, and you know they got along really well. So wow, that was, that's like the detective end of curating, isn't it? So yeah, how did you discover that? Well, I think it was actually um, Pedram and I went to Signature Prints. Uh, in St Peter's who still hold a lot of wonderful design, graphic design archives for sale and we actually acquired the majority of the Florence Broadhurst archive from them in the 90s and we were talking sort of about Florence's designs and it was actually the gentleman who owns the business at the moment. He let us, I think it was actually we saw a carpet rolled up in the corner of their workshop studio and said, oh, is that a Persian carpet? And um, he said, oh, yes, it's actually from the Cadres family. And we said, oh, you know, do you know them? And he said, oh, well, yes, Florence Broadhurst knew them too. So it was just kind of almost coincidental, but amazing. So then, of course, he put us in touch with Bob Cadre, Jack's son, who still runs the business with his children today. Mm-hmm. And Pedram was able to get in touch with Bob, who's a very wonderful, generous human, and start uncovering some of those stories. And then he's actually going to come to the museum and talk with us for a Q&A session. So we'll be able to learn more about that story, which is really exciting. Oh, how wonderful. There's probably letters and diaries and all sorts of things connecting these people who are really significant in Sydney. Exactly. As well. Oh, look, I think that's a wonderful space for us to maybe leave the conversation. Is there anything that you would like to include that we haven't covered yet? I guess I just want to say that, you know, really I think what's so exciting about this show is that we have already had such um, an enthusiastic community response and engagement with the exhibition and it's really something that I know personally in the first couple of weeks I've been popping over every day and just just going and saying hello to visitors and asking them what they think and that's how you end up discovering that someone might have heritage that you know you didn't that that you wouldn't otherwise know or fond memories of travelling in Iran and I think just you know as our volunteer team just being able to uncover those stories and share that discussion with everyone just really helps to have such a you know rich experience during the tradition and and you might find that some of the Iranian community members would be really happy to have a a chat with you because there are often some groups that haven't actually been to the Pahas Museum before and so it's really exciting to have them coming and visiting and being able to share with us. So I just wanted to say, yeah, thank you, you know, to all of you that will spend this time connecting with our visitors because that really just makes it such a rich experience for everyone and hopefully we'll be able to continue all those connections with people into the future. It does, doesn't it? It's very typical of the kind of exhibition that makes us relevant to our community around us and makes the Powerhouse Museum what it is. So thank you so much for telling us all about your experiences. I think the volunteers will really value hearing these stories. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Dawn. And I'm happy to chat with anyone anytime. So we'll see you on the floor. Thanks. Bye. Bye.